Pastor John spoke uh, this morning of hope in his message on the mercy seat from Exodus, the God who meets with us and a God who helps us. And tonight we're going to look at one of the tough questions that I think comes out of uh, this COVID-19 pandemic crisis. And it's a simple one. If God is sovereign, if he is the God who he is, what do we make of this? Why is this happening? We're going to examine this evening when the Bible says, what the Bible says about this in our time of worship, and we'll begin that uh, in a moment. We'll look, we'll look at the passage that we're going to do. But first, I think it's important for us to acknowledge just what's going on in the world today. It is a strange and crazy week. We've gone from the usual day-to-day -day living to shut-ins, watching government broadcasts and watching the rise in cases and deaths from this deadly COVID-19 as it afflicts the world. And all that's happened in just, it's just been a week and a half, two weeks. What are we to make of this? What does it say about our vulnerability as human beings if a microscopic virus can bring the world's economy to a virtual halt and generate panic in a few weeks as this pandemic has now reached 188 of 195 countries in the world. But I want to say to you tonight that there are some even deeper questions that we need to ask. As Christians who believe in the sovereignty of God, we know, as R.C. Sproul has so famously said, that there are no maverick molecules in the universe, that God is ultimately in control of everything and all of them. But what, again, does that say about God? What does that say about our current situation? What does it say about God? And you might be asking yourselves, why does God permit this to happen? Why does this, he permit this to occur? What possible purpose could these horrific events serve? Why doesn't God do something to stop it? Now, that's actually not a new question because tragedy is not something that's new. It's existed since the fall. Back in Genesis 3, we see the fall into sin. And after that, we see tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. And each generation has tried to grapple with it, and whether it be a personal tragedy or something on a global scale like we're seeing with this pandemic. In 1981, there was a famous book published with a catchy title, entitled When Bad Things Happen, to good people. That was by a Brooklyn, New York rabbi named Harold Kushner. And Kushner wrote the book as he struggled with the death of his son, Aaron, who had died from a hereditary disease. Basically, the, the, the base of the book surrounded the problem of evil. That's really what we're talking about in this context, is the problem of evil. And Kushner tried to answer the age-old question, if God is good and all-powerful, why does he not prevent evil from happening? If God, and his argument was this, if God were all-powerful, he could prevent evil. And secondly, if God were all-good, he would desire to prevent evil. But since evil exists, there can be no powerful or all-powerful or all-good God. That was his argument. And Kushner tried to answer that answer that that that, that situation, and he basically his, his answer was to say that God does not does his best in the situation, and he does the best with his people in their suffering, but he is not fully able to prevent evil. In other words, 
Kushner, and his conclusion is that God is not all-powerful. Now, this book that he wrote was incredibly successful and sold over 4 million copies. And it's actually something that's still uh, selling very well if you check on Amazon and those other places. But the question is not how well it sells or how well something is articulated. The question is, is it true? Is this the actual truth about God? Is God limited in this way? Is that why God doesn't stop viruses like the coronavirus because he's not powerful enough to do so? We might say, well, what would God say to all of this? What would he say to tragedy? What would happen if we asked God why he allowed this to happen? Did you know that there was actually a time in the Bible when God was asked about why he allowed death and disaster? We're going to look at that passage this evening as we try to understand what we're to do in light of the events that are happening in our world today. And spoiler alert, it's not to go out and hoard TP and all the other things that are out there. Jesus faced the same kind of questions that we see uh, being asked around us, and even that perhaps are in our own souls tonight. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke 13. I'm going to read to you the first five verses. Jesus here is being confronted by uh, the, the, the Pharisees and others uh, and asked questions. Luke chapter 13, verse 1 to 5. Hear now God's word. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all of the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but yes, this is the word of the Lord, and it endures for all time. Let's just come to God in prayer. Father, as we come to this text, as we come to this challenging text this evening, where we pray, would you use it for our instruction? We know, Lord, that these things are written for our instruction. We know that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I pray, Lord, that it would be that tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to think carefully and deeply about these things that we would be able lord to make sense of the situation and lord i pray if there are any here who have not yet turned to you lord i pray that you open their minds and their hearts this evening to the gospel of jesus christ and his grace and his mercy and his forbearance bless us lord we pray speak to us by your holy spirit in jesus name amen well, here we have a rather surprising answer of Jesus Christ to these questions. He responds by saying to this question about why do you allow bad things to happen or why are these disasters happening? He says whether it's an intentional human or uh, a, just a horrific accident, he says it's an opportunity not for us to necessarily examine God, but to examine ourselves, to examine our own hearts and for us to repent. We're going to unpack this challenging text here this evening under two main headings. The first is, Jesus teaches the lesson 
of tragedy. And secondly, Jesus teaches the necessity of repentance, the lesson of tragedy and the necessity of repentance. Well, first of all, we're going to consider how Jesus teaches the lesson of tragedy. And we see this first tragedy that is, that is brought, out by, brought to Jesus is an account of a brutal murder by Pontius Pilate, whom Jesus himself will later encounter in his trial. In verse 1, he says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And what he's talking about here is referring to an incident where some Galileans had evidently gone up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And they had been put to death. They had been basically stabbed in the back by the governor's soldiers as they were in the act of offering sacrifice. And the reality, and, and it's, a, it's a graphic statement here, it talks about their blood mixing with the blood of the sacrifices. It's, it's a particularly horrific detail that is being conveyed here. And the, the, it, it's difficult to, to see what would justify such a brutal execution at such a moment. Now, the Pharisees are uh, in, a, um, uh, in an oppositional relationship with Jesus Christ. They're always trying to trip him up. They're always trying to, to give him really tough questions. And of course, the problem of evil is one that many of us, I think, struggle with. And they were perhaps smarting a little bit because earlier in chapter 12, uh, Jesus had challenged them and said that they couldn't even see the signs of the time. So they, 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 they come back at him with this question. It's kind of a, a doozy, a stumper that they're going to bring him to. So Jesus here is uh, presented with a sign of the times, this horrific story of these worshipers that were killed. Um, remember, Jesus himself was a Galilean. So they're also asking this to him, too. It's very personal. And so he, they're, they're, they're trying to trap him into some sort of response, maybe even... To, to say something against the governor so that they can then proceed with prosecuting him and, and getting him in trouble. So it's, it's a really difficult situation. But there may be some sincerity behind it as well. They may have been sincerely wanting to know the answer to this, like perhaps some of us do too. So how does Jesus respond? Well, his response is surprising and direct. But it's not all that we would expect, or even maybe what his followers might have expected. The first thing I think is helpful for us to understand is what Jesus doesn't do, right? Jesus doesn't uh, organize a prayer vigil for the dead. Although he's known for people, he's known for compassion for people facing death. Back in Luke 7, you see the widow of Nain, and he goes and he raises the child from the dead. Um, we don't see Jesus expressing that here. He has a different focus. And even more surprisingly, this would be kind of an easy thing for us to do, but to condemn the, the wickedness of the action, right? To murder someone in the back like that is the wickedness. So Jesus, though, doesn't condemn Pilate here. Now, the other thing is that they are challenging him, and they're challenging him as an authority. And Jesus is, we believe, God incarnate. But he doesn't offer an apology for not doing something to protect the innocent in the situation. These are the kind of things that we might expect Jesus to do from our modern perspective. We live in this secularized Enlightenment culture that is influenced by the, the, by the principle that all men are innocent and do not deserve to die. 
But what's Jesus's response? Well, verse two, he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What does he mean by this response? Notice that Jesus is not turning away from the situation. He's actually confronting it. They brought him into one tragedy. He actually gives him another. Verse 4, he, he gives a, another situation. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus here not only takes their question, he gives them another situation. And it's not a situation where wicked Romans killed innocent or supposedly innocent Jews. No, he gives them another one where you see a tower in Siloam that fell and killed 18 people. And it wasn't something that was perpetrated by corruptness. This is what they call in the insurance industry, truly an act of God. So what is he doing here? What is he going on? Well, it helps us to understand that there is a fundamental cultural difference in the way that we see events in this passage in the way that the Israelites would have seen. Because we are informed in a different way than they are. And it makes it difficult sometimes for us to understand and to relate to what's going on here. You see, in our modern society, we live in a secularized age. We live in a day and age where very few people think that they are evil. And almost nobody talks about sin. We can say any other swear word, but don't talk about sin. Because sin implies that we are accountable to a higher power. We live in an age that is influenced by the Enlightenment. Enlightenment ideas were that every man is born good, and innocence dominates our thinking. And as a society, we assume innocence, and we try, unsuccessfully, I might add, to explain away evil in the hearts of men. We don't really have a good answer for it. But the Jews that Jesus is addressing here are in a different time. It was a time when they were more influenced by the Bible's teaching, a time when people were keenly aware of the sin and the existence of evil. And instead of assuming that someone was innocent if they were killed, they immediately assumed that the people who were killed deserved to die. Here we see the Jews assuming that the victims were actually guilty. And if they died, they deserved to die. If they lived, they deserved to live. In other words, they had a worldview that was basically you get what you deserve. So do you see that kind of cultural difference? I think that's really important for us to understand as we approach the text. We have a tendency to assume that victims are innocent and not worthy of the death that they receive. But for the Jews of Jesus' day, the fact that these Galileans were killed were what was just what they deserved. This is a self-righteous attitude, but it is an attitude that they had. For them, life was kind of like those old Western movies. You know, uh, if, you, if you grew up, maybe some of you did, watching those, those Westerns where you had the good guys, and the good guys are the guys with the white hats, and the bad guys are the guys with the black hats. And for the Jews, basically anybody who died was a guy with a black hat because the God, they, they believed that God blessed those who, were, uh, who lived and, and who were prosperous and successful, and you would kill and, and get rid of those who weren't. So if you were poor, that was a result of, uh, of not being a good person, right? So they had a very sort of prosperity gospel, a very false view of the world in the Judaism of this day. The good guy lives, the bad guys die. 
And so this is what they, they're, they're, they, how they would particularly approach this problem of why these, these tragedies occur. But I want to insert another viewpoint into this equation because we live in what is often called now a post-Christian society. I don't like that term. I think that, that, that it's Christian whether we want to acknowledge or not. I think that what, what that says, though, is that Christianity used to be something that influenced. Um, I believe that it is still uh, the, the way, the truth, and the life. But we live in a, in a society that has rejected Christianity. And so there's a different way of handling this kind of scenario. We see it, it's, not, it's not here in the text, but you've heard it and I've heard it before. And that's the, the view that people are basically good. And basically, pe most people deserve something that's good. But you know what? The universe is unfair. The universe is unkind. The universe and everything in it is ridiculous and random and meaningless. And so life is unfair. So that's, I think, something that encapsulates the kind of attitude that we have in response to these things. We either feel like we, we, we the, like the Jews, that they get what they deserve, or that life and the universe is unfair. Don't even try and make sense of it. But that's not how Jesus tells us to respond here. It's not how he responds here. He rejects both of these approaches, both the get you get what you deserve view, among, that, that, that's kind of smug, moralistic, oh, well, and they must have been bad people to, to have died. And he also rejects uh, the, 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 the modern viewpoint that, that, the, that is absolutely depressing and discouraging, that life is meaningless and it doesn't matter anyway. It's absurd. Instead, Jesus here does two things, and he repeats himself twice, just in case we, we missed it. He first, he asks a question, and then he issues a command. He asks the question, do you think that you are worse than, do, do you think that these people who died, whether they are the, the victims of the, uh, the, the, the tower that fell or the Galileans who were worshiping, he asks the people that are asking the question, he redirects the question to them, and he says to them, do you think that you are that they are worse than you? And then he issues a command: repent. Those are the that's the way that Jesus handles this. So the first thing that we're going to look at here is the question which he asks them. He says, "Do you think that these Galileans were worse than you?" It's actually a very interesting question if you think about it. It's a question that we need to ask ourselves even. Do we actually get what we deserve on this earth? Are the scales of justice balanced? Some might ask, is COVID-19 a judgment against us? What does Jesus say in this situation? Take note. He says in verse 5, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Jesus here, I think, teaches that the reason for tragedy is not always directly connected to the actions of an individual. Sometimes tragedy has other purposes in God's providence. Just because we can't see them doesn't mean that they are not legitimate. Consider some of the examples that we have in the scriptures. One of the famous ones is found in the book of John. You turn over to John chapter 9, you will see it. John chapter 9, verse 1 to 5. Here we have Jesus dealing with a blind man. 
as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. <clears throat> we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So here we have an example later on in Jesus's ministry where he is, he is saying that this man who's born blind, it was not a direct result of this man's sin or his parents, but it was actually designed by God in order to show forth the power of God as Jesus comes and heals him. But this is not just something that we see in the New Testament. We see it also in the Old Testament. Consider what happened to Joseph in the Old Testament when he was sold by his brothers into slavery because of their hatred and their jealousy of him. Did Joseph really deserve to be treated like that? I don't think any of us would think that he deserved to be sold into slavery and, and basically jailed for a good portion of his early adult life. But this was part of God's eternal plan. This incident where he was sold and put into slavery and put into jail put him into a position that he could interpret Pharaoh's dream and be elevated to the position essentially of prime minister of Egypt where he could enact policies that would enable the, the, the survival, not only of Egypt, but of the covenant people of Israel. And later on, his brothers come down from, from Israel, and they're they are desperate for food. And Joseph gives it to them, and then he confronts them. And he says in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, As for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. So here we see two incidents in the, in, in the Bible where it, it was not the direct sin of the individual that then had negative consequences vis visited on them. Now, I want to say this carefully because I think it is true that sometimes a person does suffer consequences for their sinful actions. For example, in 1 Corinthians, we see the Corinthians experiencing um, sickness and even death as a result of, uh, of the way that they were taking the Lord's Supper um, wrongly. But I think the scriptures are clear that not all suffering is directly traceable to a single act on the part of the person. God has his purposes in suffering. We don't always know what they are. Job never found out why God was allowing him to be afflicted. As Isaiah says, our ways are not his ways, and our thoughts are not his thoughts. We are not God, and it is not up to us to make these moral judgments. In fact, it's dangerous for us to do so because it can lead to self-righteousness, even in our judgment of God. And that's the very problem that Jesus is addressing in our passage. And it's important that we understand our relationship between us as humans and God. We are mortals. We recognize that our life is not our ultimate existence. We have a limited life. And the, the guarantee is 100% of the people watching this tonight will die at some point. Some will die in tragedy like this. right? Some will die in their sleep. But all will die. I will die. You will die. And there's a reality to this and a sobriety to this. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There is a day of reckoning when the scales of justice will be balanced. But God often chooses for now to withhold his punishment 
for his own purpose. But here we have the attitude of these, the, these Pharisees that are asking. They're, they're, they're asking. They're asking in this smug, self-righteous way. Much like Job, when he was suffering, he had his, he had his friends, these so-called friends that came alongside him. And they, 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 they challenged him. Uh, Job's friend Eliphaz, for example, in Job 4, verse 7 said, Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? In other words, they were saying to Job, you must have done something wrong. In one sense, this is true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory, and no one seeks after God. But the fact is that we're all equally guilty. Culturally, these Jews believe that whenever people met with hardship, or difficulty, they were getting what they deserved. But the real lesson that I believe that Jesus is teaching here in tragedy is that when we are facing it and when we are experiencing, our focus ought not to be on God's relationship to other people. The, the focus that Jesus brings directly here is not on the, the victims of the, the Tower of Siloam tragedy. The focus Jesus brings is to those who survived those who continue to focus on your own, my own accountability to the God who made us. In other words, both the Jews in their time and even us in our own time are focusing oftentimes in these situations on the wrong things. The Jews assume the guilt of the victims and we assume their innocence. But Jesus says, we're all guilty. We all need to take these signs as an urgent message from God that we have a limited amount of time here to address our situation before him, and we're accountable to him. The Jewish problem, which is also our problem, is that we forget that God does not treat us better or worse according to what we do. A lot of us have a false view of God. I grew up watching um, TV reruns uh, in the 80s of, of a show called Highway to Heaven. Some of you might remember it, some of you may not, but it's a story uh, kind of like touched by an angel, where an angel comes down and he, he basically solves people's problems. But it was not a very biblical view of God. And basically, he works with this, this guy, Mark. And Mark is, is kind of a rough-around-the-edges kind of guy. And he swears and he does things that are wrong. And whenever he does anything wrong, something happens. So, for example, if he's driving a car and he swears, all of a sudden, boom, his radiator goes, right? Because that's God uh, attacking him on the basis of what he's doing. That kind of thing. I think a lot of the times we feel like that as well. It's like when something happens, it, it's based on our performance. And, and when we do have bad things, we, we don't think we really deserve them. But notice here, Jesus consistently disagrees with the crowd. He doesn't say that the people were wrong to hold God responsible for the tower falling. Jesus knew that this was under God's sovereign power. Where Jesus actually disagreed with them was their assumed moral superiority to the people that died at Siloam. Jesus' message here is that they were no better or no worse than anyone else. And this is the message of the New Testament as well. We see this in Romans chapter 3, where it says, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And if you continue in that Romans 3 thing, it, it, it's just relentless. No one is righteous. No one is worthy. What these Jews fail to understand, and what we often miss as well, is that we are truly, in our nature, sinful. 
We are so full of sin, there seems oftentimes to be no end of it. And this is why Jesus tells them, do you think that you're any better than these others? And then he urges them, secondly, on the necessity of repentance. So the message here that he's trying to, to give them in tragedy is that, that the message of the tragedy is not to focus so much on the, the realities and the details that are there, but to focus on our relationship, because it reminds us that we all face the tragedy of death. Death is a tragedy. It's not a natural part of life. Death is a result of the fall into sin. And when we see the death of others, it reminds us that we ourselves are accountable to God. And Jesus here seeks to, to, to help us to understand that. The message Jesus here is presenting is a simple one. One that we, that the message that we need to learn from tragedies is quite direct. It's repent or perish. Now, again, that sounds a little harsh to our modern ears, doesn't it? What does he mean by this? Is Jesus being harsh in this? Well, I believe what Jesus is trying to do is to make us to think. What does a tragedy actually force us to do? I think the first thing that happens whenever we experience or we're going through things uh, like this is it forces us to think. How do we address it? How do we escape it? How do we survive it? Right? I think many, for many of us, when we heard about all of the lockdowns in other countries, we think, okay, what do we need to get? You know, you're like, okay, we've got to plan our, our trip to the grocery store and make sure that we have enough food to, to survive a lockdown and all of those kinds of things. We start thinking when we, when we face these things. There's a certain urgency to our thinking of him. A thought that the thinking comes to engage with the reality of our experience and what we're, what we're having. But um, Jesus is, is, is trying to stimulate us to a deeper level of thought. A thought that engages with the reality of our life. Do we actually get what we deserve? Now, I want you to take a second with me and think about that question. Are you getting in your life what you actually deserve? Do you get what you actually deserve for all the garbage that you have produced in your life, for all the sin that's present in your life? I mean, if you think about all of the lies that you've told, uh, that you've never gotten consequences for, the bad things you've done that you've never experienced the consequences for, why is that? Do you think that you have even received a tenth of what you should have for the things that you've done and gotten away with? Why have you not faced worse consequences for your sin? I will tell you, the reason you haven't is because of the mercy and the patience of our God. God graciously again and again and again, over and over, has not given you what you deserve. If he had given you what we all deserve, then we would all be consumed. We don't deserve a smidgen of grace. We deserve his condemnation. And I think this is really important for us to see, because I think we, we get this completely out of whack. And I've, I know I've used this illustration before, but I think it's a really powerful one. Some of you know my father, Pastor Lee, had a, a major accident back in 2011 and had significant pain. And, uh, and, and there was an operation, it didn't go very well, and he's now living with chronic pain. And one of his caregivers at the time came to him and she said to him, she said, you know, 
I, I like to ask people this who are going through this because I haven't experienced it, but I have, I have a question, you know, have you ever thought about in this situation, you know, you're, you're a pastor, uh, you know, I assume you're a good person. I like you. You're very kind in, in the way that you, you, you interact with me. So it doesn't seem like you deserve this. Have you ever asked God, why me? And my father in the situation looked directly back at her and he said, no, he said, I say, why not me? Why not me? And I think that's a really profound statement and a profound challenge because we have this sort of entitlement mentality that we're in, our lives are entitled to be good. But the reality is that if we were to take the sum of our sins and to weigh it in the balance, right? This is what Islam does, is it weighs all your good things against your bad things. Inevitably, everything would be completely out of whack. Our bad would far outweigh our good. And so the fact that we are allowed to live and survive and continue on at all is a measure of God's mercy. Jesus is trying to show us here, therefore, something that we do not want to believe. We want to believe that if God is a God of grace and love, that means, therefore, that we're not that bad. Or if we're really that bad, that God can't love us. Right? That's, that's what we, we want to believe. But Jesus is saying that God is gracious with us, and he is patient with us, and that these tragedies are a warning sign for us. They are lessons that are meant to cause us to reflect on eternal reality, and when we reflect on eternal reality, to see our own sin and to turn to God in repentance. There is a reality. There is a day of judgment that is coming. As we said earlier from Hebrews, it is appointed for every man to die and after that to face the judgments. But God here gives us the lesson of these tragedies and outbreaks in order to help us to think. He will ultimately bring justice and he will bring judgment against sin. He has promised to do that. But he is now withholding. And I think this is a measure of his grace, right? Jesus is saying, right? He's saying that in this situation, our focus needs to be on repentance. Second Peter chapter 3 says this. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Right? What Peter is saying there is that God is going to fulfill his promises. His promise to bring justice. He has promised to address sin. But he is patient. And he's patient for a purpose. Because his desire is not to destroy, to, to have people die in a fire, but that all should reach repentance. This is the, the indeed, the, the express um, viewpoint of our God. So in light of that, what does Jesus call upon us to do? He says, repent, repent. We need to turn from our sin, to turn away from our sin, and to turn to God. Our London Baptist Confession of Faith is helpful here. It teaches that there are really three aspects to true biblical repentance. Chapter 15, it talks about them. It says this, this saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person 
being made by the Holy Spirit, made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, so that means being convicted of his sin, doth, by faith in Christ, humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace, with a purpose and endeavor, by supplies of the Spirit, to walk before God unto all well-pleasing uh, in all things. So basically, it identifies really three aspects here. There's, there's an aspect of confession. When we repent, we need to intellectually and spiritually acknowledge that we have sinned. And we're informed by this by the Holy Spirit who works in us, who convicts us of our sin. And we abhor it. We, we hate it. We hate our sin. And it says that what we do in this is we pray to God and we confess it before him. So confession is the first aspect of repentance. But then it also speaks about contrition, where there is actual and emotional aspect. There is a godly sorrow. We feel in our hearts that we have sinned against God. This is, there is a godly sorrow, as, as Corinthians says, that leads to repentance without regret. And ultimately, this confession and this contrition leads to ultimately change, where there is willpower. We resolve to sin no more, to walk before God and to please him. Not in our own strength, but it says, by the supplies of the Holy Spirit, unto well-pleasing. So repentance is at the core. And this is the heart of biblical Christianity, to repent from sin. Right? Every one of us ought to be repenting from sin. Not just once when we become a Christian, but continually. Martin Luther, who famously started the Protestant Reformation with his 95 theses, the first thesis says this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. That's right. Our lives should be full of confession, full of contrition, full of change. And this is the, the glory of God sanctifying us, right? The promise that he makes in his scriptures that you hear me say all the time from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what we need to understand here is that Jesus here, his response to these people asking the questions is essentially to call them to repentance. Jesus here is a picture of God's mercy. And he's saying, you know, instead of trying to put God in the dock here, instead of putting God on trial here, we need to recognize that we all live under the judgment of God for our sin. And the most important thing in this situation, the most important thing that you can do in this situation is yourself, as you look at all of these things, is to repent and to reconcile with God. I like how Lincoln Duncan puts it. He says this. He says, before they ever even wanted God's mercy, God had already sent his son to the world to preach to them repentance because he himself is going to bear the judgment, a much worse judgment than the people who died by the falling of the tower by the pool of Siloam, a much worse judgment than the people from Galilee who were offering sacrifices who were slaughtered by Pilate, a much worse judgment Jesus endured. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Jesus goes to the cross. But as Duncan goes on to say, and I think this is a really powerful statement. He says, Jesus is more ready to forgive your sin than you are to repent of it. Isn't that true? 
Isn't that true? That's the picture of the scriptures, that God is willing and ready. But we, in our stubbornness, in our hard-heartedness, we want to hold on. We want to be right. We want to be God. We don't want to submit to another. We want to be the authority in our lives. But we need to remember that God's grace is powerful. And this is what's on display here. Jesus is trying to direct them to real reconciliation, real hope, real wonder. This is the grace of the gospel. Jesus is willing to show his mercy. He's willing to show his love in this way. And he, he has that incredible truth, right? Jesus knows, God knows how sinful you and I are. And he knows all the wickedness that we have managed to get away with, right? The Bible is clear. We actually don't get away with anything. There will be a time where there is uh, a day of judgment, a day of accounting. There is a time where you will come before God, and you will have to answer for every single thing that you did. And basically, you will either end up paying for it in punishment, in hell, or you will have the blood of Jesus Christ to cover your sins. You see, the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus came, and while we were yet sinners, died for us. While we were yet sinners, showed us the mercy and the wonder. So that when we look at these sorts of tragedies, we need to remember his mercy and his grace. He died to reconcile us to God, so that we might indeed not perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That, my friends, is the glory of the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's something that we need to think about in these times. Jesus here is trying to teach us the lesson of tragedy and to point us to repent and believe and trust in him for our salvation. If you haven't done that yet, please, tonight, don't delay. This crisis, this situation has only reminded us that our lives are vapors. Our lives are temporary. And there is an urgency for us to reconcile to God, to be reconciled to God, to repent and believe. So friend, if you have not, Turn to Jesus Christ. Don't harden your hearts as you hear this. Don't be like this, where Jesus is more ready to forgive your sin than you are to repent of it. See the grace of God. May the Holy Spirit convict us of our sins and drive us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. He is ready to receive. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege that we have to have your word, Lord, which is so clear at this time. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to utilize the means that you have given to us, to cause us, Lord, to look to you in repentance and faith. Lord, would you indeed open eyes and hearts to the glory of your gospel, that Jesus Christ came to show us mercy that we did not deserve. Help us, Lord, to embrace that truth and to indeed share it with our neighbors, that they may see the love of Jesus Christ that they may indeed see the glory of his mercy and his forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.